important doctrine that is not um, today's contemporary evangelicals are not familiar with. Um, and this is a doctrine that affords us great rest and comfort, uh, assurance. So I hope that it'll be of, um, of great help to you. <clears throat> Let's give it a reading again. In the Belgic Confession, it's Article 13 on divine providence. And it reads, We believe that the same God, after he had created all things, <clears throat> did not forsake them, nor give them up to fortune or chance, but that he rules and governs them according to his holy will. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that nothing happens in this world without his appointment. Nevertheless, God neither is the author of, <clears throat> nor can be charged with, the sins which are committed. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner, even then when devils and wicked men act unjustly. And as to what he does surpassing human understanding, we will not curiously inquire into it further than our capacity will admit of. But with the greatest humility and reverence, adore the righteous judgments of God, which are hid from us, contenting ourselves that we are disciples of Christ, to learn only those things which he has revealed to us in his word without transgressing these limits. <clears throat> this doctrine affords us unspeakable consolation since we are taught thereby that nothing can befall us by chance but by the direction of our most gracious and heavenly Father who watches over us with a paternal care, <clears throat> keeping all creatures so under his power that not a hair of our head, for they are all numbered, nor a sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of our Father, in whom we do entirely trust, being persuaded that he so restrains the devil and all our enemies that, without his will and permission, they cannot hurt us. And therefore, we reject that damnable error of the Epicureans who say that God regards nothing but leaves all things to chance. So, <clears throat> it'd be interesting, um, like a, for homework, if you would check in all their Reformed Confessions, and then check the, uh, the chapter or the article on divine providence and kind of compare them, okay? Um, I think it would be of most, uh, most interest uh, to see how they complement each other, but yet they all have the same essence to it. So summing it all up, what is God's providence? We said, we have been saying, uh, summing it up like this, God's providence means... 
that God not only creates, but sustains, directs, and governs all things according to his counsel or will <clears throat> for his divine purposes. So everything that happened happens according to God's counsel or will. Nothing can happen that God has not ordained, <clears throat> whether it be um, by his permissive will that he allows something to happen because he deemed it in keeping with his ultimate purposes, okay? <clears throat> and obviously, then the, the good that he has ordained to happen, um, where we get a little, a little trouble into trouble is where how do we accord, how do we square, how do we reconcile the evil that happens in the world with God's providence, with the doctrine of God's providence, um, <clears throat> And that's, you know, we're going to try and sort that out uh, tonight. So, <clears throat> that would be uh, a statement that defines God's providence. That He, God not only creates, but sustains, directs, and governs all things according to His counsel or will for His divine purposes. Then we said last week that there are God's general works of providence. God's general works of providence, which is God directing creation, <clears throat> sustaining it, upholding it, providing for it, in His common grace gives. Hmm? So God is not some remote, removed, distant creator, as some people would call it, or architect of the universe, or some first cause. But he is a God that is involved in uh, sustaining and upholding and providing and directing his creation. So those are God's general works of providence. But then we also spoke of God's special works of providence. So God's general works of providence has to do with the upholding and the sustaining of creation, general creation. But then when we speak of God's special works of providence is how God is directing and governing and ruling all things for the purpose of redemption and the salvation of the elect, the salvation of his people, okay? <clears throat> and then we connected those two. So we have been putting some links here, right? Now we say that God's general works of providence are ultimately intended to serve God's special works of providence. And we saw passages last week to that effect, that God that gives us uh, the rain, the seasons, right? The harvest that has made, has given men happiness in the labor, the fruit of their hands, their offspring, so that men may find him. So notice the purpose of God's sustaining of creation and providing for it is ultimately for salvation, for redemption. So there is a connection. The God of providence is a God that upholds all things, sustains creation so that 
men may come to his saving, to the saving knowledge of his grace. Then we also said that God's providence works are all of, through, and for Christ. A verse, a passage to remember, we're going to pick it up here now, uh, and repeat that passage is Colossians 1. Notice in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 16, we hear, For by Him, by Christ, all things were created, that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. So notice that God's providence has as a reference Christ. All of God's works in creation, and obviously unto redemption, are, uh, have the, a Christ, a Christocentric reference. Christ is the center, right? Everything is directed <clears throat> unto Him and through Him. Verse, uh, verse 17 And he is before all things, and in him all things consist, or subsist, or he upholds all things. So God in and through Christ upholds creation, and ultimately, redemption, which is God's ultimate end, is also of Christ and through him. And then we come to... um, Another um, statement that we made about God's providence, and that is that God's providence, um, God works His providential uh, counsel through means and or secondary causes. So God has established means and secondary causes in order to accomplish his ultimate purposes. And this is what some theologians have called the the principle of concurrence. That God works, but God's works do not annul, cancel, or set aside causes that he has established. Hmm? Whether they be natural causes whether they be the free agency of his creatures, okay? The nature of his creatures and things like that. God works, right? And ultimately, everything has a reference to his ultimate divine will, but not nullifying or setting aside secondary causes. And now we need to to untangle that and explain that a little bit. So, um, and we're going to begin doing that by looking at a passage that we had mentioned <clears throat> the first time that we addressed this issue in Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. It's a story of Joseph and his brothers. And in Genesis 50, <clears throat> after the, uh, the encounter of Joseph with his brothers in Egypt... And Joseph reveals himself to his brothers who are 
dismay that, oh my goodness, you know, our brother is alive and everything that we did um, is coming, you know, is coming back to haunt us, uh, so to speak. Um, so they are afraid. And Joseph tells them the following. Genesis 50, beginning in verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Verse 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. So notice the event of Joseph ending up in Egypt involved the evil nature, intent, and plan of his brothers, possibly tempted and enticed of Satan to commit a crime, whether it was to kill him or ultimately to sell him off as a slave. That was all of the evil intent and devising of Joseph's brother, brothers. God did not put that evil in there. God is not the author of sin. He does not tempt anyone to sin. So of their own evil intent and nature, they came up with this plan. Now what, what can God do and what does he do with evil? He has ultimate control over it. It's not a devil. It's not a demon that can do as they wish. Not a single one. There's not a molecule in this universe that can run amok of God's will. Everything is upheld in and through Christ. Okay? So, the evil is all from the heart's of, of Joseph's brothers. However, God allowed it. Hmm? God allowed it. God could have derailed it. God could have intervened. God could have refrained that evil. But He did not. And He let that course go as God had planned. So notice there the concurrence of God's work and at the same time establishing and allowing for secondary, and the free agency of creatures without God being the author of sin. <clears throat> the way that Calvin used to put this is that God divides darkness as He pleases. He, he, God can... Darkness always wants to, right? Which in this case, darkness would be substitute for the devil or for the sinful nature of man. So sin and the devil, the flesh wants to do what the devil and the flesh want to do, right? If left unchecked and unrestrained, God knows, right, what we are capable of doing. The reason that we're not as depraved and that evil and wickedness does not run, ultimately, all the course that it could possibly run is because God refrains it. Say, stop, no more. Up to here. Not this way, not this. 
So God is ultimately the one in control over darkness, over evil. So that is an important point to keep in mind. The Bible reveals that to us in many passages, okay? Another great man of the Reformation, Martin Luther, used to say, and these are provocative phrases, but they have great truth, that the devil was God's dog, that he had him on a leash, that he had him on a leash. And that, um, at the end of the day, while it presents to us the, the, the unavoidable question, well, why doesn't just God put him, put him away for good, you know, and why does he, he allow him to do the things that he does? Yeah, that's where we refrain from going further but ultimately, it is a comfort and consolation to know that no one can contest God's power. And that ultimately, God is in control for an ultimate good. And we shall have more to say on this, uh, this dilemma that sometimes presents to our, to our minds. So, so we see an example here in Genesis 50. Let's take a look at another passage in Isaiah chapter 10. <clears throat> Let's go to Isaiah chapter 10. <clears throat> Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah 10, beginning in verse 5. <clears throat> Verses 5 through 7. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. Assyria was known as one of the most wicked empires that ruled uh, the world, okay? But notice how God refers to Assyria here. Assyria here. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. So notice again, what's in the heart of Assyria, his king, his ruler? To destroy, right? To conquer to cut off nations and conquer and rule. That's what Assyria wants to do. But God says, you are a rod of my anger. I'm going to unleash you, Assyria, on the nations and the people that I want to judge. See that? So God uses Assyria to punish other wicked nations. And let me ask you, is there a holy, godly nation in the world? No. Right? No. There isn't. Let me ask you, is there a holy, godly, um, their, of their own, right? Of their own resources, of their own making. Not only nations, is there a holy, godly individual of their own resources? None, right? None. Reason I, the reason I bring that up is that, you know, we are quick to say, oh, that's unfair of God, right? That's unfair of God. 
to deal with us like this. But the question is, what do the nations deserve? And what do we deserve? So if God unleashes the wicked, the most wicked of nations against us, or the most wicked of people against us, and we are harmed by them, the question is, has God done evil or acted unjustly? Something to keep in mind. Something to keep in mind, okay? And that's what he's doing here. He's going to unleash Assyria. One of those nations that would be punished by Assyria would be what? Israel. <laughs> Israel, who was conquered by, Azir, by Assyria in 722 King Sennacherib. Took the ten northern tribes and took him captive. And the south was later on conquered by Babylon. So notice how God used wicked kingdoms, right, to punish his own people. <laughs> to punish his own people. And then you notice here that Assyria is acting according to what his heart wants to do. And yet, in acting so, Assyria is but executing God's ultimate counsel and will. So notice how God is using means, secondary causes, hmm, to accomplish ultimate purposes, which are always good. Even if it is a purpose of judgment, that has to do with God's justice. We can say that God is acting wickedly, right? That He's acting uh, unjustly. <clears throat> Let's take a look at a couple of more passages in Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 6. 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. So notice God here is claiming ultimate sovereignty. He's saying, who can proclaim as I do? Who can declare a plan, a purpose, and set it in order. Will there be someone that can do so? And then God speaks here rhetorically, right? A little bit of, a, of a divine irony, so to speak. And He says, well, if there is, yeah, let, let them show me. Let them inform me of their plans, right? Because that would be a greater God. The God that can declare and, and proclaim something and, and execute it, without His will being thwarted, 
That is the ultimate sovereign God, and that is the God of the Bible. He's got no rival. He's got no competitor. He's got no equal force of evil that rivals against him. He is the sovereign ruler that declares, proclaims what he wants to execute. Okay? So uh, let's take a look at Isaiah 45 now. Isaiah 45. God is going to speak here of another instrument in his hand. Isaiah 45 verse 1. It says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. So Cyrus was a Persian, Medo-Persian king. And was the one that overcame Babylon, and in doing so, let the Babylonian captivity, the exiles, return to Jerusalem. So God is going to use uh, Cyrus. As Cyrus is my anointed. So this pagan king is a king that I am going to use for my purposes. Even though what he wants to do is what? Subdue nations? destroy kings, right, Uh, conquer, but he's going to accomplish my purposes. Let's take a look at verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to a setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. So there it is. The Bible makes no bones about God's ultimate control and sovereign rule. No one can oppose them. No one can stand in his way. He is the one, obviously, through concurrence, as we have already mentioned, he allows calamity and darkness and destruction to take place according to his purposes. We need to grow out of... um, I think there has been an infantile mentality that somehow the good that happens, oh, we just say, well, that's God. And the bad and the evil that happens, we say, oh, God had nothing to do with it. And we understand how people say that. And what we would say, yes, that's right. It is not that evil is not in keeping or according to God's character. God hates that evil. He abhors evil and wickedness, but he has willed it according to his good divine purposes. Okay? Let's take a look. um, Let's take a look at the book of Acts now. In Acts chapter 2, we have what we mention is the ultimate, the ultimate evil work 
that humans have perpetrated in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. <clears throat> I'm sorry, beginning in verse 22. Acts 2, beginning in verse 22. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So notice again there, these two sides to God's providence. On the one hand, lawless, sinful, wicked plans, right? That conspiracy of the Sanhedrin and the Roman rulers and uh, the leaders in Israel, uh, the people that were bribed and all that, they, are, they all conspired to have Jesus crucified. That they did of their own intent, their own desires, their own inclinations. Hmm? Yet... It was all answering, and according to, it says here, God's determined purpose and foreknowledge. It was all happening according to God's determined purpose and God's knowledge. God could have kept them from executing those plans. God could have restrained them in their hearts, from that evil. But God allowed it. Because He had an ultimate divine purpose with the murder, the crucifixion of our Lord. <clears throat> Any questions so far? Any questions so far? <clears throat> okay, well, let's continue. Now let's take a look at um, how this God... Um, he is doing all these things ultimately um, for our good. Hmm? Ultimately for our good. Uh, for the good of his people. For the good of salvation. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 28. Romans 8 beginning in verse 28. Through 30. It says, and we know that all things work together for good. Notice that it says all things, right? All things. Sometimes that's hard to, it's hard to accept, right? It's hard to process. It says all things. It's inclusive of everything in our lives. All things are working together for good. Why? Because the God of providence has ordained that all things happen according to His immutable counsel for our eternal good. What is that eternal good that God has ordained? So notice, work together for good to those who love God, to those who are that called according to His purpose. 
For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God's foreknowledge has to do with God's uh, for uh, entering into, fixing his eternal um, love, favor on someone, okay? So it's been said that God's foreknowledge is basically God's um, looking into, right, into the future to see what's going to happen. No, God is not a fortune teller because he just looks into the future to find out what's going to happen. God knows in the future what God has ordained to happen. The Bible says, known unto God are all his works. Who's, what is God going to know in the future? But what he has ordained. When God looks into the future, he is looking at his counsel being executed. And his ultimate divine purpose is being fulfilled. So when God foreknows for whom he foreknew, when God foreknows his people, he foreknows them in Christ. He foreknows them insofar as his divine purposes are going to be fulfilled in those that he has foreknown. Okay? So for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Whom he foreknew in Christ for his divine purposes, he said an appointed end. He said a destiny. He said um, an end for us. So those of us that have been known by God or foreknown by God, according to his redemptive purposes in Christ, we are destined for what? It says here, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So in Christ, that is God's destiny for us. God's divine purposes for us. Nothing will be able to derail God's elect from that purpose. That's the doctrine of God's special providence. That all things must work together for my salvation. It has ordained all things, good or bad, for my salvation, for my good, for my ultimate redemption and conformity to the Son. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that it might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined to that end, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Notice, He calls us. So He uses means. His ultimate, his ultimate um, end Right? It's this foreknowledge in Christ hmm? of his elect to be conformed. The predestination then is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So those that he foreknew for that purpose, he called. Notice, he called. So notice that the calling is after what? His foreknowledge and his predestination. So he called. So this is the me. He called, and in calling, he uses means. He uses the gospel, the word of God, and so forth. So that is the external calling. Hmm? 
the means, but we also speak of the internal calling, the Holy Spirit, that enlightens us and that gives us a new birth according to God's plan. Hmm? Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Absolutely. God's foreknowledge. Okay. Very good. Yeah. So God's foreknowledge and predestination is before the foundation of the world. So we hear that in Ephesians. Keep it in Romans, but go to Ephesians 1. And in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So this choosing in Him is God's foreknowledge of His elect. Okay, He knew us before the foundation of the world. He fixed His favor on us before the foundation of the world. Okay, so that is God's eternal counsel. Okay, His will for His people. For the elect, right? And then, then at some point in time, at some point in time, He calls us through means. The external means of the Word of God and the internal means of the Holy Spirit. And then He enlightens us, grants us a new birth by granting us faith and repentance, and we are born again and thus united with Christ. And all of this according to the counsel, once again in Romans 1, in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, Notice, so we read verse 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. And then go further down to verse 11. In Him also... We have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. See that? The purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That is the doctrine of God's special providence. Okay? So going back then to Romans 8, um, 30, 29 and 30, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He foreknew us, right? He chose us in Christ, okay? And then what happens? He chose us in Christ to be adopted as children, predestined the end, which is conformity to Christ. And then at some point in time, he called us. And whom he called, he what? 
justified. Not a single one of those called here is left out of what? Of justification. Because this is what's been called that unbreakable chain. Right? Notice foreknowledge of God moves the next link, which is predestination to conformity, to glory. Conformity to Christ. That is set in eternity, right? So according to that plan, the pleasure of His will and the free counsel of His election, then He calls effectively. Effectual calling. Hmm? He calls everyone that hears the gospel, certainly. And He desires that people be saved according to His character. But God particularly and irresistibly and effectively then draws a people unto himself. That is why he says here, whom he called, he justified. So, you know, he called and then he sees if they're going to respond. No, because then he would have to say whom he called that responded, he justified. (laughs) But he said, whom he called... He justified. (laughs) Because it is answering the other links from eternity according to God's uh, will of election, right? So, uh, again, whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. None is lost. None is lost. This is the unbreakable chain of salvation. The golden chain of salvation. As it has been called. This is the chain that we ought to wear. <laughs> this ought to be our, our, our theological jewelry. <laughs> um, it's a beautiful, beautiful summation of God's uh, work uh, for us. Let's take a look at um, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 37. John 6, beginning in verse 37. Isaac, you have John 6 there? Okay, take a look at John 6, beginning in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Okay? So notice, the Father has given us to Christ. Where? In that doctrine of election. The Father in Christ has elected a people that He is going to give to Christ. That He's going to have them uh, come to Christ. The Father gives me, will all that the Father gives me will come to me. Notice, what is the ultimate reason why we come to Christ? Because we have been given of the Father to Christ. We have been given of the Father to Christ. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Notice, will come to me. That means they don't come kicking and screaming. We come of our own volition. On the one hand, there is the eternal foreknowledge 
providential electing will of God by which God works in us effectively. And when He does, we come willingly. We come, we choose to come. Your people will volunteer in the day of your power. Hmm? The psalm says that. Yeah. Faith, which is a gift of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And notice that. If you are coming to Christ, He's never going to cast you out. Sometimes when people are dealing with doubts and questions, and I, I just basically go back to, do you want Christ? Are you afraid you're going to lose Him? Do you fear that you're going to be cut off from Him? Do, do you want to come to Him? Yeah, but I'm afraid my sin is a... Do, you know, what do you desire? To come to Christ? Yeah. Well, He says if you come, He doesn't cast you out. So keep coming. Keep coming. Keep crying out to Him. Keep looking for Him. Keep seeking after Him. You know, keep reaching out for Him. If you do, you, He will never cast you out. And that is all of the Father's, right, a special providence in your life that you would do that. <clears throat> Verse 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I should lose nothing. The doctrine of uh, the security of salvation. Hmm? Eternal security. Why? Because we have been given of the Father to the Son. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise Him up at the last day, who sees the Son through faith. Notice the means that God has ordained. The God that has ordained the end, the ultimate ends, also ordains the means to accomplish those ultimate ends. That is the doctrine of divine special providence. He's working those means to bring you to His desired ultimate ends. Okay? Let's take a look at Philippians chapter 2. As we continue, we have seen it in salvation. Now we see it here in Christian growth, discipleship. In Philippians chapter 2, we hear the following. <clears throat> Philippians 2. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we are called here to work out, hmm? right? To demonstrate, to let it be expressed, to put it into practice, hmm? to do, to work out the salvation, what the Spirit has given us. So that's what we do, right? Notice our, our will, this is not done without our will, right? Without our intellect, without our emotions and affections, hmm? without our efforts, all of that is not nullified or canceled. But notice the other side, the concurrence here. Verse 13. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see that? Our responsibility, work it out. And you can trust that, that he is working it in. <laughs> you can't work it in. <clears throat> you can only work out what he is <clears throat> working in. What he is working in. <clears throat> Or we could say we work because he has worked prior. The work of God is always prior to your work. The, your work always flows from God's work in you. So that every time that you do something good, <clears throat> commendable, you know, a Christian work, <clears throat> a work of love, a work of faith, you are too. Thank God. <clears throat> he worked it in you. You did it because He worked it in you. If He would have left you to your own devices... <clears throat> Why would you have worked out? <laughs> right? <clears throat> Our flesh. <clears throat> right? Sometimes the Lord leaves us to our flesh. <clears throat> And when he leaves us to our flesh, we mess up. And why would he do that? <clears throat> hmm? Yes. Yes. Our, I want you to check in our, um, I remember now what chapter it is in our Baptist Confession of 1689. I'm going to bring it next week. There's a beautiful statement on why God does that. <clears throat> And it has to do with precisely <clears throat> to make us aware, more aware of our weakness, of the nature of the flesh, to make us rely more on His grace, To make us more watchful against future opportunities of sin. Because as he leaves us to our flesh and we taste the dust, we realize how bitter it is. The thorn. The thorn, right? That he had a thorn in his flesh. And then God never removed it. I'm going to leave that there because that is a... And it was a messenger of Satan, remember? A messenger of Satan to buffet me. Oh, my goodness. Today's charismatic evangelicals say, Oh, my goodness, we have to, have to kick out that demon. I have to really send him away because it can be of God. Well, hmm. <clears throat> yeah, it's not of God. It's a demon, but it's accomplishing God's good purposes. Because it's humbling Paul. He's humbling us. He's making us more watchful, more dependent on His grace. He's abasing us. He's, he's putting us low. You know, he's, he's, he's letting us see what Paul saw. I see that in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So, <clears throat> work out your own salvation with fear and trouble, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Let's take a look at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought up 
our Lord Jesus from the dead. This is Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 20. That great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, verse 21, make you complete in every good work to do His will. So may the Lord, through the covenant of grace, through grace, right, make you complete, mature, ready for every good work to do His will, working in you, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You notice that? He works in us what is well-pleasing in His sight. Wow. He's working in us what is well-pleasing in His sight. Okay? So that is the Lord's doing <clears throat> by His Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. The, wor the word for foreordained here is foreknown. It's the same word, foreknown, prognosco. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Notice the meaning that they want to assign to this uh, language of foreknown Insofar as God looking into the future to find out, to see what people are going to do. He didn't have to look into the future to find out what Christ was going to do. He foreknew Him. Meaning He set those divine purposes ahead of time in His, fore, in his divine foreknowledge. He predetermined through that foreknowledge. He indeed was fore, or foreknown before the foundation of the world. Um but was manifest in these last times for you, who through Him believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. <clears throat> Notice here, this same word uh, in verse 20, you could check it out in, if you want, in your Greek dictionaries or interlinear. He indeed was foreknown, it's the same word of verse 2. Verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1. When he talks about elect, the pilgrims that are dispersed, that are scattered, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. We have been foreknown of God. Not that he looked down and knew what we were going to do. No, no, no. It's that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Elect according to foreknowledge of God the Father in, and now notice, the means, the agency, the means, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So, it doesn't cancel out the means. It doesn't cancel out the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit and regeneration. <clears throat> it doesn't cancel out the obedience of faith. But it is all owing to God's uh, foreknowledge and His electing counsel. 
Okay? So the means are at work. I wanted to highlight that. <clears throat> Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So notice God choose, chose us and the means that He deployed, that He brought to bear upon us were the Holy Spirit sanctifying us, meaning setting us aside in Christ, setting us aside in Christ, <clears throat> and by means of that being set aside in Christ, or the Holy Spirit working to regenerate us, granting us faith. So notice faith in the gospel. So notice the means that are at work there. God, for ordination, right? Before the foundation of time. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's regeneration and faith in the gospel. So the Holy Spirit's effectual calling, bringing us to regeneration through the hearing of the gospel and our response of faith. <clears throat> they all are there working concurrently <clears throat> of, according to God's divine purposes. Let's take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth. See? The end of the day... Since it is not our doing or their doing, we should be patient and we should be gentle. And we should just teach in humility and in patience, correct, hoping and praying that God will grant them repentance, which is the other side of faith. The same thing as saying that God will grant them faith or that God will grant them faith in repentance. 2 Corinthians, and we're coming to a close, 2 Corinthians 4. So that's on the side of God. What about, what is Satan after? What is he doing? 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So notice those that are perishing, the gospel is veiled. It is veiled from their minds. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded their minds. So they has this veil um, that they cannot remove of themselves. They are dead in, in sins and trespasses, as we hear in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And then in verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bond servants for Jesus' sake. 
For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And notice, on the one hand, those that are perishing, it is all there doing. Blinded, slaves of Satan and sin, they choose what is according to their nature, right? But when we are saved, we're saved thanks to who? To whom? To God's action. Because He commands light to shine. And when He said in creation, let there be light, so Paul is using, the Holy Spirit is using here a parallel to say, then He says to somebody that is blinded, let there be light. And the light shines of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Beginning in verse uh, 9. Beginning in verse 9. This is our last uh, passage. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Notice how important this truth is. Those that are lost, why are they judged and condemned? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. God spoke to them. God has given them means in creation and those who hear the gospel, and yet they insist in what? In their own ways. By the way, isn't that the Arminian scheme? Right? That you have to choose, Right? Well, yeah, you have to choose, right? And what happens in the Armenian scheme to those that don't choose? They what? They're condemned, right? So we support that. <laughs> we support that. So we support that those that do not choose Christ are condemned, just like the Armenians say, right? So those that are condemned are condemned not because of God, but because they did not receive the light of the gospel and chose wickedness, right? And chose darkness. And that is according to what? To the nature of their hearts, right? Okay. So as far as that goes, we agree with the Arminians. Then we say those that are saved, it's not because they choose of themselves Christ but because God acted effectively to bring them to His grace. So damnation is all of the account, right, and chargeable to the ones that are being lost. And that there are some that would be saved is all of God's free, saving, electing grace. If God had not, chosen to save a people, then 
in this fallen world, then we would have all perished. And that's what we hear in Romans. If God had not left us a seed, we would all like, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? So that is the doctrine of special providence. This is what God is doing. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. So God further hardens, right, their hearts as they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved as he did with Pharaoh, right? That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. All right, so we'll close there tonight. Any, um, any questions?